Good morning again. Well, I'm really excited about what's going to be happening over the next five weeks. Uh, we put together a series of messages about how we develop the content of our character and how to have a breakthrough in your influence and significance in the world out of your character, what it takes to grow our character, to grow what's inside of us. We spent the last five weeks talking about our influence in terms of with our neighbors, who our neighbors are, hearing stories, really powerful. So we were focused outside ourselves. What we're going to do the next few weeks is really get to work on what's inside of ourselves. And I hope that you're going to make a commitment to be here and to take seriously the questions that are printed each week in the study guide and to take full advantage of the opportunity to do some really, some really good work on yourself. Each week we're going to be looking at uh, a fundamental habit of Jesus, a fundamental habit and discipline of Jesus that will allow us to develop our character, who we are. Jesus, these, these character traits are found throughout his teaching and if you apply them to your life, you can expect the same results in your life as in Jesus' life and in the life of his disciples. The wonderful thing is the disciples and themselves, their, their lives is put on display for us, for us to read and to hear their stories so we can, we can learn from them. And today we're going to get a, a moment to look at a very critical moment in the life of Jesus between him and his disciples where he's talking with him about what is going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. And we get to see and learn from how they respond in that moment when they're under a tremendous amount of pressure. We get to be in the classroom with Jesus and his disciples. So let me tell you about something that happened uh, this week for me that was a little bit outside my comfort zone. Well, very much outside my comfort zone. Uh, on Thursday, I called my daughter, Rebecca. Rebecca is a terrific teacher. Uh, she's been teaching for about 10 years uh, at Foster Traditional School on the other end of town, and terrific school doing great work with some kids who have some unique challenges uh, for them. And she's really challenged as a teacher. She's really engaged there at the school, and, and it's a wonderful place. Well, that's also where my granddaughter goes to school, and my granddaughter is in kindergarten. So on Thursday, you know, I had this great idea. I'm going to go volunteer and be grandpa for a day at the school in the kindergarten class with my daughter. I've never done anything like this before. It's probably not in my frame of reference of what I would normally do with myself. So I text my daughter, can I go to the class on Friday, hang out in class, read, you know, help out, do whatever a teacher wants. I'm just there to serve on Friday. And she is excited, you know, happy about it. Got back immediately. Yeah, the teacher loved to have you. You know, they don't get grandpas, they get grandmothers, they don't get a lot of dads, they get moms, not a lot of dads. Be great, come, you can read, help with art and crafts and all that kind of stuff. And it was absolutely worth it because my granddaughter didn't know I was coming. And she, last place I would expect to see me, she thought, you know. So I walk in the classroom and just the look on her face was something I'll never, ever forget. And, 
And she yells, Poppy, you know, you're not supposed to speak in class. So you got a little, shh, shh, shh. So I tell him, hey, my name is Poppy. <laughs> I'm Addie's granddad. I'm here to help today. And it was, it was great. But the first assignment was, everybody just assumes, I guess, that I can do art. I'm terrible at arts and crafts. And this little girl named Zoe, Mr. Poppy, will you help me with the, will you help me with the arts and craft project today? It was Earth Day one day this week, evidently. And so they took like a coffee filter and we had to draw an earth on it. Then we had to glue it to a piece of black construction paper. And then we had to write Earth Day as every day and write our name on the back of the paper. And we didn't do any of it right. And so the little girl, she got really frustrated with me because, well, we found out that if you write on construction paper with crayons, you can't erase the mistake. We spelled Earth Day wrong. We wrote it in the wrong spot. We didn't glue the paper down. We tore the coffee filter. And of all the, of all the projects that went home today with the kids, Zoe's was not good. Zoe means life, by the way. She didn't get a life from me, no help from me at all. You know, and it was great because the kindergarten teacher looked at me and she said, she said, Mr. Pop, it's very important that when we do arts and crafts that you listen to all the instructions. You know, so, 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 so. We're, then, we're then, you know, they didn't, they didn't give me the instructions when I got there. So we're walking down the hallway, and I'm just being myself. I'm talking, I'm laughing, I'm poking, I'm prodding. Evidently, you're not supposed to poke, prod. You're supposed to keep your hands to yourself. She looks at me, she says, Mr. Poppy, in kindergarten we keep our hands to ourselves. We don't poke, we don't prod, we don't talk, we go to lunch. And then we go back to the classroom. We took our lunch back to the classroom. And then there was another faux pas where I allowed this, the kids sitting, I'm sitting at this little bitty desk, you know, eating like peaches and chicken nuggets and stuff with these kids. And I let this little girl, she said, where do I put my milk? I said, put it right there. And she put it right in a big pile of ketchup. And then it was like, every time she set her milk down, it was like ketchup spot size of, all over the table. Mr. Poppy, we clean up after ourselves, you know. And then it, it, it was a disaster. I'm not going back. You know, Addie, Addie loves the whole thing. She's going the whole time. And um, so then I get the big moment. I get to read to the kids. And I speak to lots of people every weekend. I don't use notes. I'm not nervous hardly. But I tell you, sitting in a room full of like 30 preschool or kindergarten age kids. I was like a wreck, you know. That's not how we do it, Poppy, here. You're supposed to turn the page slower. You're supposed to ask questions, look at the pictures, you know. Don't make up the story. Read the words on the page. You know, that's not how the story goes. It was, it was awesome. But what I learned from being in kindergarten is that we all still have a lot to learn. Doesn't matter how old you are, we all need to be in the classroom. What I learned is that kindergarten... It's not so much about learning ABCs and learning one, two, three, that being in kindergarten is all about socializing. It's about learning how to be a good person, uh, how to get along with others, how to keep your hands to yourself, you know, how to uh, uh, only speak when called on and not to talk, not to poke, not to prod, all those kinds of great things, and to make sure you follow the instructions, you know, when you're, when you're doing the art. We we all have something to learn, every one of us. So I realize as I look around the room, we have people who have been here a really, really long time. We have some people who may be here the first time. 
And sometimes it feels a little bit awkward when we walk into a room, into a, a, a religious building or religious community, and we think, I don't know what I need to know. I just want to say to you, this is a shame-free learning zone. You know, keep your hands to yourself. Listen, of course. But, but, but everybody here, we're all beginners. We're all just trying to learn. We're all just trying to learn and to grow and develop and to focus. So what we're going to do is we're going to be talking about how do we grow the character, what's on the inside of us. Now listen to this conversation that took place between Jesus and his disciples. They're in the classroom a lot, you know, out in the world. And this conversation reveals so much to us about who they were, and we can learn a lot from them by listening in on the conversation. Here's what's happening. Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. Now imagine how Jesus must have felt because he knew what was going to happen. He's got a crowd of people following. He's under tremendous pressure, probably afraid, probably filled with sorrow, probably anxious. And this story here is the third time he's given them this instruction. The third time he's told them what's going to happen. And this is what he says to them. He says they were on their way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of everybody. The disciples were filled with awe, you know, because they're thinking, hey, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and big things are about to happen. The people following behind were overwhelmed with fear, probably worried what's going to happen when we get there. Jesus has been in a lot of conflict with a lot of people. So everybody's got different ideas about what's going to happen when we get there. He then uses the moment to teach his disciples. He pulls them aside. And once more, once more, the third time, he begins to describe everything that was about to happen to them. And he says, listen, listen. We're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. And listen to what's going to happen. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, whip him, kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Now listen to the seriousness of this message. Mock him, spit on him, flog him, whip him. Kill. Somber words. I mean, think, how would you feel if you're sitting in this circumstance and you're listening to Jesus, and this is the third time he said this? Well, what happens to the, the disciples? What are the disciples thinking about? Here's what happens in the story. It says that as soon as Jesus finishes teaching this teaching, James and John say, hey, Jesus, come here for a minute. We want to talk to you about something. We got a question for you. Now he's probably wondering, what are they going to ask? You know, what can we do for you? How can we help you? Is there any way to avoid this? No. What the disciples say to Jesus is, hey, Jesus, now, when we get to Jerusalem, what we want you to do is we want you to do a favor for us. <laughs> now, I would just think about that for a minute. Jesus is just talking about he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, and he's going to die. And the disciples are like going, yeah, when we get there, we want you to take care of us. Jesus is thinking of everyone else. 
He's got the weight of the world on his shoulders, and the disciples are so clueless. Who are they thinking? They're thinking to themselves. They're thinking, hey, when we get to Jerusalem, we want you to take care of us. And Jesus looks at him and says, well, and I love Jesus because he's unrattled. You know, he's got this big soul, and he's calm. He's like a kindergarten teacher. Doesn't get upset, even voice. Asks, he looks at him and says, well, what do you want me to do? And they say, when we get there, we want you to give us a big job. When you become king, we want to be in your cabinet. We want to run things. We want you to pad our resume. We want you to take care of us. Can you imagine what Jesus is thinking? Are they even listening to me? Are they even following instructions? What's going on with these guys? Will these guys, this is the third time I've told this, and they're asking for privileges. They're asking for a position. They're asking for a title. What Jesus is saying here is that when it comes to the development of your character, the development of your character, your character is more important than the content of your resume. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, preached this great sermon. He said about I have a dream. Do you remember what he said? He said the day will come, my prayer is that a day will come when people will not be judged by the color of their skin. And I would add that to say by their title, by their position, by their power, by their money, by their circumstances, by the clothes they wear, by any of the things that the world judges as success, that will no longer matter because what matters most is the content of a person's character. That when a person has good, solid, moral character, that that's what's most important in life, not their resume. David Brooks, I love David Brooks. He's a New York Times columnist. And he wrote a wonderful book about character. It's called The Road to Character. He wrote it because he was undergoing sort of a moral crisis within himself. He said he reached a point in his life when suddenly he realized he had been living for all the wrong reasons. He had spent the most of his life, he said, as a journalist and as a teacher building a resume. But he said he'd made the mistake of building a resume when instead what he should have been building was his eulogy. Because on his deathbed, they won't be talking about his achievements, the things he wrote, or his titles, or his positions. But instead, they'll be talking about the only thing that endures when you're gone, and it's the content of your character, who you were as a person, it's not that your career is not important. It's not that what you do is not important. It's just that the more important and weighty matters in life is who you are. And what Brooks said in the book, he, he tells the stories of all these great individuals who were able to shape human history and how they were people who made commitments to causes bigger than themselves because of the enduring quality of who they were on the inside and the development of their character. 
He said the primary purpose in life is not pursuing happiness. It's winning the war of forces within us. Within us, we all have these competing forces of good and evil, of darkness and light. And that we, at the end of our life, will be able to say that we had become the best possible version of ourselves. Look at this um, model here. Our character is, we're like an iceberg, okay? People only see the top portion of us. What breaks through at the top is only what people see, a very small percentage, it's 10%. That's how we show up every day. But our character is everything beneath the surface that shapes what shows up. Now, I wrote down a list of character qualities and traits that I've seen in people that I admire and how they show up. Dependability, sincerity, humility, compassion, honesty, resilience, generosity, discipline, content, tough-minded, loyal. You could also put a whole list of negative negative qualities in how they show up. But here's how character is reflected in the way you live your life every day. Time will eventually reveal who you are. Over time, you can't fake it. Over time, what's inside will show up on the outside. Adversity, when you're under pressure, will reveal who you are. Give somebody some power. How do they treat people around them when they're in power? Go to eat dinner with someone. Go to eat dinner with someone who's in a position of power and watch how they treat the wait staff when their order doesn't come out right. You'll find out who that person really, who that person is. Give somebody a lot of money, you'll find out who they are. Money doesn't make people better, it just makes them more of what they are. If you're a jerk with no money, you can just be a bigger jerk with more money. Temptations. When faced with an ethical dilemma or a choice, your character ultimately will shape how you respond to it. Let me give you a personal example. So recently I met an individual who um, I really wanted to impress. I really, you know, wanted to impress this person, wanted to get to know this person. I thought this person might be able to help me. The person served on staff of a big, large church in Southern California with a very prominent minister, was executive pastor. And I wanted to get to, this is, and this, this person's really cool, cool, cool person. So invited him to lunch and we went to a nice restaurant and I'm wanting, I have my, I got my list of questions I want to ask and, you know, I'm hoping to develop a friendship. So the meal comes and when I get nervous, well, I just, I just talk all the time anyway. It doesn't matter if I'm nervous. <laughs> I'm just always talking. But when I get nervous, I talk, I talk even more and faster. And um, so we're eating and I'm eating a salad. And then the unbelievable thing happens. The worst imaginable thing happens. A piece of food flies out of my mouth and lands on his salad. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is like, it's over. This is like, and so I'm, I'm faced with this huge dilemma. I'm under pressure. What, do, I mean, what would you do, you know? So what do I do? 
You know, I mean, if it was Roger McAllister, I'd have spit in your food, Roger. Roger go, well, go get me a new salad. But I'm trying to impress this guy, so I don't really know him. It's my first time to meet him, so I'm looking there, so I'm thinking. I mean, I'm like sweating bullets. It was like one minute that lasted like 30 minutes in my brain. I said to myself, okay, I just spit in his food. What do I do? (laughs) Maybe he didn't see it, and so I don't say anything. And then I'm a loser. Maybe he didn't, he saw it, and I don't say anything, and I'm a loser. Whether he saw it or not, should I tell him so he can get a new salad and not eat the food I just tried to eat? If I do that, I'm a loser. So in that moment, under, it was intense. You know, I was faced with a very difficult personal dilemma. And so I really had in that moment had to decide what I was going to do, okay? Now, I can't say that this reveals good character or not because maybe I was just trying to save myself. You judge it for yourself. So I looked at this new guy that I just met for the first time, and I said to him, look, i got to be really honest. I spit some food in your plate. (laughs) Can, Can I buy you a new salad? You know what? It was pretty much over at that point, the whole conversation. I haven't talked with him since, and I don't think I'm ever going to call him again. But that moment, that moment of pressure really revealed something to me about myself, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Okay, I hope that never happens to you. But think about the disciples now and Jesus. They were in this really pressure-filled moment. Jesus is about to die. The disciples are totally ignorant and selfish. What does he do? Does he lose it? No. He has a sense of contentment and peace about him in that moment, and he responds in the moment with courage and calm and goodness from the inside of himself. In that moment, what do the disciples do? Under pressure. They responded out of their envy, their lack of sincerity, their greed, and their selfishness. And in what follows, Jesus then gives them the key and tool for us developing all these qualities inside of us. This is what he says to them. The other disciples are listening, and they get mad, okay? They get mad. They're mad at James and John because James and John are trying to jockey for position. Okay, Jesus doesn't lose his cool. Instead, this is what Jesus says. He says, in the world we live in, people in positions of power are going to use their power and their authority to keep other people down and to get their way. But that's not how it's going to be with you. It's not how it's going to be with me. Because if you want to be great in this world, you got to be a servant you got to think about other people first. And then he says, I came here. I'm the son of God. I came into the world not to be served, but to serve others. Then Jesus, later on, you see it again and again and again and again and again. And you know what? The great thing is if you're discouraged by this, about thinking others first, the disciples eventually get it. They eventually figure it out. 
And they end up serving in the same way that Jesus did. So if you're discouraged with yourself, just know how patient Jesus is. If Jesus didn't kill them after three tries, it wasn't three tries and you strike out. He just kept coming back to them again and again. His love is relentless for you. He's not going to give up on you till you become the best version of the person that you can be. He's like that kindergarten teacher. Keep your hands to yourself. Don't talk when you're in love. He's going to keep pouring in love into you. Apostle Paul then says this later about Jesus. Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Take on the same attitude that you saw in Jesus into your own life. Put other people first. Because Jesus, even though he was equal to God as the Son of God, did not use that for his own benefit and privilege. But instead, he took on the position of a slave and a servant and became a human being. So if you want to see all that stuff grow inside of you, it begins with this fundamental building block of Jesus, go back to the slide, of thinking others first. What would that do in the place where you work? I'll tell you what it would do for a marriage. If two people are thinking others first, both people are going to get their needs met. Friendship, relationship, anything. What would that do in our church if you thought others first? What would that do in our city if you thought others first? So last Monday was the Boston Marathon, and I have a friend. His name is Mike Corfidge, and Mike uh, and his dad run Corfidge Nursery in town. You probably have heard of it. Great, great family, uh, wonderful people. Uh, Mike uh, is sort of the head of a running group that I get to be a part of, and Mike is a, a terrific runner and a terrific person. He's about 45. And uh, he's so encouraging to everybody. Never talks about his own running, never talks about his own achievements. Uh, he's constantly challenging, encouraging others. Doesn't matter if you're a, you know, you're a first-time runner, new runner, slow runner, old runner, all those kinds of things. He's always encouraging. Well, Mike had a personal goal at the Boston Marathon. Mike was going to Boston because he wanted to, to run it in under three hours. Now, I don't know if you what that, know what that means, but that's an enormous achievement for a 45-year-old person to run a marathon in under four hours. That's an incredible pace. Most of you will be challenged to run a quarter of a mile at that pace, and he's going to do it for 26. Most people who run marathons, only a small percentage of people ever can break four hours on a marathon. He's going to do it under three. Well, he's five miles into the marathon, and he tears up his Achilles, Achilles heel. He makes it, and he's, I'm following him. He's like on, on track, enduring unbearable pain. He'd been sick the whole week before on antibiotics. He's trained for weeks for this on the hardest, one of the hardest marathon courses in the world, the Otis Marathon. And uh, he's on course, he's on path to break it or to be close to the three-hour mark and to set a PR for himself on the race. And something happens. He gets down to the finish, 100 to 200 yards from the finish, a guy falls in front of him, collapses. It happens often in marathons. 
Most people just run on by because they've got their own personal goals. Mike stops to see the guy. And you need to know this. Here's the difference between a real runner and just someone who plays at it. A real runner, you never ask them if they want medical help or to leave the course. Because a real runner, the only way they'll be taken off the course is in a body bag. Because you train and you're going to finish. You're going to crawl across the finish. If you have to crawl, you know, that, that's, just, that's just it. So do you want help? No, I want to finish. So Mike picks him up. He's in tremendous agony and starts to carry him. Then two soldiers come on and start to carry him. Then another runner comes in. And the governor of Massachusetts caught this on video. He was interviewed when he got back here in town about it. It made national news. Mike's got one leg. Another guy's got the other leg. And for, they're limping across in pain. And he gets that guy. He helped that guy get across the finish, thinking others first. And I loved what Mike said. Mike sent an email out to everybody on the team, on, in his group. And he said, he goes, yeah, I had a personal had a personal record that I wasn't able to keep. But he said, I tell you what, helping him finish and helping him succeed and reach his goal meant so much more to me than it meant reaching my own. That's thinking others first. And you know, if you make your life about finding your own happiness, you'll never find it. There are a lot of miserable people in the world searching for happiness. Happiness is not something that you get by seeking. It's something that comes to you when you do something for others first. And if you want the character that was in Jesus, just start applying that every day. Think others first. Think others first. Think others first. And inside of you will grow patience and discipline, and humility, and courage, and that's the birthplace of joy.